Open your Bibles up to 1 Peter chapter 3. Two things I want to make sure you know about as well today. We have, we're taking communion after our sermon. And then we also have a members meeting, um, informational church meeting, I should say. And so uh, we're going to give an update about the finances, some of the ministries taking place. And uh, it's going to be a brief meeting. So we're going to have the morning service. Then we'll have about a 10-minute break. Uh, allow those, they need to get their kids, get their kids. And uh, then come back in here and have that brief meeting. Right, Ken? Is it brief? Brief. Okay, it's a promise from our chairman of our elders. If it was me, I couldn't promise that in good conscience. So, okay, First Peter chapter number 3. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 22 this morning. Now, students, those of you in school or college, what would you say is your most difficult subject that you have? Or if you can remember back to that time when you were in school, what was that subject that you dreaded? Chemistry? chemistry? Greek. 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 Aren't you studying for ministry? <laughs> Some of you, it might be languages, right? You know, so did anyone learn Latin when you were in school? Any of those? Okay. Whoa. Okay. Oh, some people that are young too. That's not something that happens much anymore. Uh, maybe you had a pick of your languages and so you chose the easier one because you hate language. Some of you dreaded trigonometry or calculus. How many of you in there are those that love trigonometry and calculus, okay? And then every one of us that is not that way puts our hands down. Or some of you really dreaded literature, reading those 500-page books, maybe writing a term paper. Well, for a pastor, there's some texts of scripture that are very difficult, some Say you might even dread. And actually, verses 19 and 20 of our text this morning are one of those texts of Scripture. Martin Luther, the German reformer, he wrote this in his commentary. This is a strange text, referring to verses 19 and 20. And a more obscure passage, perhaps than any in the New Testament. I do not certainly know what St. Peter means. So... Now, I have not drawn that conclusion this morning, but there are many theologians uh, and pastors, actually, that come to this passage, and including me, and ask the question, what does this mean? And so if you look at it and you're confused, you're in good company with people like Martin Luther and any honest pastor out there. And uh, so we're going to look at this text this morning. I'm not going to go into the great depths that someone could do in a Bible class. So maybe if you go into digging deeper, we'll go into the depths of this next week. Um, But we're just going to draw out what Christ has for us, and I'm going to try to be faithful to what I believe the text is telling us this morning. So we're studying how can the church glorify God while we suffer. We're in the middle of this this study, and we asked that question, and the answer we found out a couple weeks ago was in verse 8, is we're to be like Christ to one another in the church. We're to be like Christ to the world in verses 9 through 12. And then last week we saw that we are to set apart Christ as the Lord of our hearts. And we saw that down in verse 15, which is really the key verse here in this passage, where he says in verse 15, if you look at it, he says, In your hearts sanctify or set apart Christ as Lord. And when we go through suffering, sometimes we can feel 
like life is out of control. Sometimes when your political candidate doesn't get in, you can feel like life is out of control. I saw a post that someone put on Twitter, and they said something to the effect of, finally, we have control. And I read it, and I thought to myself, actually, joke's on you. God's in control, right? There's really never a time where we can say we are in control. God is the one that rules this world. And sometimes when we are in suffering, we feel the reality that we're out of control. We can sometimes react by trying to gain control, or sometimes we react by being out of control in our response. Sometimes we just give up altogether, and we want to quit. But actually, our text here in verse 15 says, listen, Christ is the one who's the Lord of all, and we are to set him as the Lord of our hearts. Recognize that he is the Yahweh Lord who should rule over our heart. And then in verse 17, he concludes that paragraph, which really launches us into our next text of scripture. So look at verse 17. He says, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And really what he's saying in verse 17 is very radical, if you think about it. He's saying here in this text of scripture that it's better to do good and suffer than it is to do evil and to enjoy pleasure and comfort. And you might ask, well, how is that radical? Well, if I were to give you two choices, and the one choice is you can have comfort, you can have pleasure, all you have to do is follow your own heart, do whatever you want to do in life. Or you can follow Christ and have a lot of pain. Now, which one does the average person in the world want to pick, right? So the idea that you would say, I'm going to pick the one that's causing pain and suffering as opposed to the one that actually gets to do what I want to do and that has some level of comfort and acceptability in society, that doesn't seem rational to people. Nobody wants to be rejected. Nobody wants to be the loser. No one wants to be the outcast. And in fact, on the opposite side of that, everyone wants to be accepted And everyone wants to follow our own passions. Like we want to do what our heart wants to do. But the Bible says that that's a very dangerous thing. Because the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? So if we follow our hearts, we're following a deceitful path, which will actually bring pain. But initially it can bring what some people view as acceptance and comfort. But Peter says, no, actually it's better for you to choose Christ and, in, and within that, choose then for suffering that comes with that than it is to go your own way. And then the question you ask then is why? You know, why is that? Right? You look at this world and you go, why wouldn't I rather be a person that follows my own heart, enjoys life, and then I die? Why would I want to be a person that follows Christ, has a lot of pain, and is rejected by people? Well, he gives the answer to that here in this text this morning. And the answer he gives is, Really this right here. And this is what I think this whole text, verses 18 through 22, is about. And that is the answer. Why is it better to suffer and do good? And the answer is this. Because Jesus is the victor. And he saves and vindicates those who endure by faith. Jesus is the victor. And he saves and vindicates those who endure by faith. And I always think it's good to to try to understand the text we're dealing with this morning. I'm not going to go through this entire text here this morning. I'm going to break it up into two weeks, but 
If you, if you just look through at your text there on the screen, you can see I, I broke it up like this, and that is verse 18, Peter writes about how Jesus gained victory. That's through his death, his substitutionary death. And actually, Jesus also is an example of one who endured suffering and then was saved, if you want to say that, by his father, was resurrected, and he um, it will be vindicated and is vindicated. And then verses 19 and 20, I think Peter gives an example of Noah, Christ, through the preacher Noah, preached to those in his day about salvation through the ark, right? Remember that story, and we'll talk about that today. But those people in Noah's day, they rejected Jesus. They rejected the message of Jesus through Noah, but yet his family, Noah and his family, they trusted, they endured, they were saved, they were vindicated. And in verse 21, we'll see baptism is a symbol that we, those who trust in Jesus and endure, will be saved in the last day and vindicated. And so baptism symbolizes Jesus' victory. And then last, we will see that Jesus rules from victory at the right hand of his Father. So let's read this text here together. Would you stand with me as I read verses 17? We'll start there, really, and go through verse 22. The Bible says in verse 18 of 1 Peter chapter 3, this is the word of God, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected, been subjected to him. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the truth of the word of God. Sometimes it's very difficult for us to understand so we need the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Give us grace to see the truth. Give us humility to recognize that we don't always have the right answers. And so we must align our minds with what your word says. And give us faith to trust you no matter what we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This lady right here is known as the most murderous woman in history. Anyone ever heard of her before? Her name is Queen Ranavola. Ranavola. Queen Ranavola. I don't know. She actually has a lot longer name in African, and they shortened it down to that, I think, for us to be able to say. But she was a queen of Madagascar in the 19th century. She ruled for 33 years. Before her, the king before her invited uh, missionaries to come into Madagascar to tell the gospel. And actually, with that, the French and the English came in, and they traded with them. And uh, he was the king and ruled. And when he died, his queen stepped up, and she became the queen. And she decided she was going to kill off family that could challenge her throne. And so she did that. 
Then she began to systematically eliminate those other people who threatened her. And one of those groups of people were Christians. She kicked out the missionaries out of Madagascar. And then she began to persecute Christians. She worshipped idols. And she worshipped really the demons of those idols and the spirits. And so she wanted the rest of her country to follow that as well. In 1935, she presented these charges against Christians and condemned many of them to torture and some to death. And she said this, she says, these Christians, they despise idols, they're always praying. Wow, I wish we had that judgment upon us, huh? They, were not, they will not swear, but only affirm. Their women are chaste. They are one mind with regard to their religion, and they observe the Sabbath as a sacred day. And so therefore, she began to go around, and many people were killed, not just Christians, but Christians as well. They say that between a conservative estimate by experts is that between 50 to 75% of Madagascar's population died in 33 years. 50 to 75%. That's 2.5 million people that she killed. So she definitely was a wicked woman. And then a couple stories, one story that she had was she would take, they would take Christians to the edge of a 150-foot cliff. They would tie them by a rope. They would have an idol right there, and they would say, will you worship the idol or Christ? And when the person said Christ, they would cut the cord, and the person would fall to their death. And in the midst of this, it seemed from the outside world that Christianity was dying in Madagascar. In fact, for the Christians in that area, you know, that... Uh, that island, people were dying. And so it seemed like Christ in his kingdom was being defeated. But those Christians, if you read about those Christians, not a lot of them were literate, so there's not a lot of writings about them, but if you read about reports of them, you'll see these Christians look to Christ as the victor. And one interesting thing is when she began to rule, there was probably around 30, they say around 30,000 Christians. After the end of her rule, there was 250,000 Christians. So not only did she not kill them all off, but actually the church increased and grew. And, of course, the 250,000 Christians plus those who were in heaven. So how many that was? And the question you ask in times like that is, why is it better to suffer as a Christian for doing good? Why not just follow the idol, enjoy the life, and live? Why face that kind of suffering? And the answer that we're seeing this morning is Jesus is the victor and he saves and vindicates those who endure by faith. And so our first point is in verse 18 that Jesus gained the victory through his substitutionary suffering and death. And so look at verse 18. We see this here, the victory gained by Jesus. Scripture says, for Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous, that's Jesus, for the unrighteous, that's us, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. When we are in the midst of suffering, we can feel defeated, can't we? We can look around us and think like those, maybe some of those Christians might have, or Christians that looked into Madagascar maybe thought, like, where's Christ? All is defeated. Like, we're being pushed down. But what changes all that? It's when we look to Christ, frankly, for a reality check, right? And what's the reality check? Jesus is the Lord, and he 
has won the victory. And those who put their faith in Jesus were not defeated. We actually are on the victory side. And what did Jesus do to win the victory? Well, verse 18, it says he suffered once for sins. He was put to death in the flesh. And so Jesus gained the victory through his suffering and his death. And then he proved that he gained the victory through his resurrection. When he came to life, he was made alive in, made alive in the spirit. And what was it that he gained victory over? If you look in verse 18, what was it? What, who is the enemy in verse 18? Well, it's, it's sin, right? It's sin and everything that comes with sin. He suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. So Jesus came to conquer and he came to conquer the enemy of sin and rebellion and all that comes with that death and suffering and ultimately Satan and his minions. In fact, look up in verse 21. You can see that the scriptures identify that who's at fault for this. Verse 21, you can see in the middle of the verse, it says, Christ also suffered for you. He suffered for us. He suffered for our sins. Look down in verse 24, 1 Peter 2, 24. Sorry, I think I didn't say the chapter. Verse, chapter 2, verse 24. 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Let's, church, let's consider that this morning. Let's consider that. Jesus Christ, he suffered, he died for our sins. Jesus gained the victory over sin. God created each one of us, each one of us in this room, each one living, uh, listening online. God created you to glorify him, to live a life that enjoyed fellowship and communion with him. But we have lived the opposite of that. Humanity is born into this world as rebels, as sinners, and we live that way. We live with speaking unrighteous words, doing unrighteous deeds, following the sinful desires of our heart. In other words, we haven't glorified God, and therefore we're not in communion with God. We're not in fellowship with God. And, and God is righteous, right? Righteous means that God is just. God must punish sin. And because of that, we must face the penalty for our sin. Romans 2.5, look at this verse. This is a very sobering verse. The Bible says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Every person in this world without Christ will stand before Christ and God's righteous wrath will be poured out on them and then they will face a Christless eternity. But the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus stepped from heaven and he invited the wrath of his father for your sin upon himself. You ever been driving down the road and you've heard sirens behind you and seen the flashing lights? Now, if you're a preschool parent, it might be because your kid has a little iPad and they're watching a show. You ever had that happen to you or maybe even a grandparent? You ever had that happen? You're like driving down the road and, you know, you're woo-woo and you're like, you know, look in the rearview mirror and they're watching a movie in the back. That happened to me a couple weeks ago. And it's like, can we please not watch that one anymore <laughs> or whatever game you're playing? But if it's a real thing, if you see the lights, you see the police officer, what happens to you at that moment? What do you feel? Especially if you're speeding, 
right? You feel, first of all, you tap on the brakes, you look at your speedometer, you see how, what you were doing, but you feel this immense guilt in your heart, don't you? You feel this, this weight of, oh no, he's after me. <laughs> and you look, especially if he's right behind you, and you, you sense that you are about to pay for your sin, right? You're, you broke the law, and you're going to get pulled over, you're going to have a big fine, and whoever is your partner at home, they're not going to be happy with you. You feel like that? You ever had that happen? And, and I think that's the feeling that, that the Lord wants us to have when we consider the righteousness of, of Christ. When we consider the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, there's a sense where like the sirens of our heart should go off. We, could re- we should recognize like we're condemned, we're guilty. But have you ever been driving down the road and that's happened to you and you're like, oh no, I got to pull over. You're looking and then he pulls up next to the guy next to you and he pulls him over, you know? And how do you feel when that happens? Yes, got out of it, right? And you speed on ahead, maybe check your speedometer and go down a little bit, and guilt causes you to do that until about 10 minutes later you forget. But, and then it's kind of, it's an imperfect analogy, but just like we feel guilty and have that weight upon us when we, when we know that we probably should be pulled over, God wants us to feel that weight. But for the Christian, there's a sense when, when that we should feel the, the peace of recognizing that, and again, an imperfect analogy, but Jesus was, quote, unquote, pulled over for us, right? I mean, we should have been the ones pulled over and given justice, but Jesus did that in our place. And that, that sense of relief and confidence that we will not be condemned is what Christ wants us to feel because he died in our place. And for the Christian, we have the peace that Jesus, he gained the victory over sin. And if you are at home, or you're in your office, or you're somewhere alone, you feel the guilt of your sin, Christian. If you're feeling the guilt and the weight of your sin, look to Jesus. He's the victor. He's the righteous one who died for our unrighteousness. Notice the attributes of Jesus here. Jesus was able to pay for our sin on the cross because of who he was. He's the only one who could gain victory over sin. No one in here. No priest, no pastor, no one else in the history of mankind could ever pay for your sin except for Christ. Look down in verse 15. Again, just remember what we talked about last week. Jesus Christ is Lord, right? We, that's a quote from Isaiah 8.13, which is speaking of the fact that Jesus is the eternal covenant God of the Old Testament. So Jesus is the eternal God. Look at verse 18. And do you see Jesus' humanity in verse 18? Where does it say that Jesus was flesh, that he was human? Well, he was put to death in the flesh. So Jesus is the eternal God who became a real human. He was flesh, like you and I are. But his humanity was different in that he still retained his full deity. And he was different in that he lived a perfect life life and obedience to his father. In fact, you can see that in the description of him in verse 18. He was the righteous. There's no one else that's lived on this earth that could be described as righteous in and of themselves. Only Jesus, because he was the only one who lived the perfect life that you can never live. And again, notice what he did to gain the victory. Verse 18, he suffered once for sins. That once is That adverb is very, very significant. Jesus died and suffered once. He doesn't die every week 
at Mass or Communion, right? We're going to take Communion later. That is not Jesus re-sacrificing himself like many Catholics believe and teach. Communion, the Lord's table, is a time to remember what he's done that once time when he was the sufficient sacrifice. Many scriptures uh, agree with this. Hebrews 9, 26, Christ appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Jesus Christ died once at that time, he was the sufficient sacrifice to atone for our sin. And this is, this is therefore the great exchange. You look down in verse 18. It says the righteous, that's Jesus, for the unrighteous, that's us. So on that cross, the wrath of God that was deserved for us, the unrighteous, was poured out, poured out on Jesus, the righteous one. And why? Why did all this happen? Well, there's a number of reasons, but in this text, what reason does he give? Verse 18, to bring you to God. Now, Christian, that should be a very precious phrase right there. To bring you to God. Being brought to God is a picture of you coming into relationship with God. Right? Because of our sin, we are separated from God. We deserve judgment. We will complete, we'll be eternally separated forever. But because of Christ, we can actually be brought into fellowship with God. We can speak to him. We can talk to him. He's our friend, and we will be with him for eternity. This past week, um, I'm sure you might have had a time like this. Maybe not, but um, there's a lot that was kind of coming at one time. I probably was reading too much news, if you know what I'm talking about following Twitter too much, the updates, and um, my, I had a relative that went in the hospital, and so you kind of had all these things kind of happening, you know, and I just, it was early in the morning, I'm just feeling so low, I was feeling down, I felt this, I felt defeated, I was like, man, I'm, this is terrible, <laughs> like, life is not good right now, and, and I was talking to Dana, and I was complaining about all that stuff to her, you know, and kind of at the end of the complaint, I was like, you know what, I think I think I probably just need to meet with Jesus. Probably what I need to do right now, you know. So I got my Bible and went and I prayed. And there's something that changes in perspective. When we look at Christ, we look what he's done for us, and we look at the reality. And, and my spirit went from, it took me a number of minutes, maybe like 30 minutes, but it went from being down here to being like, you know what? I'm on the victory side. And that right there is a description, really, what it means to be brought to God. We have fellowship with God. I was able to talk to him and have him speak to me. He spoke truth through his word. I poured out my heart through prayer, and I enjoyed fellowship with him. That was gained through the suffering and death of Christ on the cross. And look at, he says, he was put to death in verse 18. In the flesh, he was made alive in the spirit. And of course, there's no capital letters in Greek, so it's hard. When you look at the word spirit, you might ask the question, is that, was that Jesus' human spirit? Is that the Holy Spirit? And different people differ on that, and some say it's the, the spirit of Christ. I, I would say it's the Holy Spirit. There's a couple of reasons for that. If you look at the words made alive, it's actually a passive participle. So it's something that was done to Jesus. Jesus was made alive. Well, who did that to Jesus? Well, it was the Holy Spirit did that. The Holy Spirit made him alive. In fact, the New Testament teaches this. Paul teaches this. If the spirit of him, that's Jesus, raised Jesus from the dead, um, dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will again 
give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In fact, these same words are used. Give life here in in verse 11 of Romans 8 is also the same word used over there. So the Holy Spirit was the one who resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead. And so when you look at verse, uh, back at 1 Peter verse 18, I think what it's saying here is he was put to death in the flesh and he was made alive by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit resurrected him to life. And if you're feeling, if you're suffering, if you're feeling defeated, where should you look? How are you feeling today? What's your reality check you should have? Look to Christ. He has gained the victory. And sometimes it's hard to see it in our dark world, but there will be a day when he will finally save us. He has saved us from our sins, but there will be a final salvation where we get to be with him and he will vindicate us and our faith in him. So why is it better to suffer for doing good? Well, Jesus is the victor, and he saves and vindicates those who trust in him. So he gained the victory, and then verse 19, Jesus proclaims the victory. So look at verse 19. It says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now that's a confusing verse, isn't it? Verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight, persons were brought safely through the water. Again, this is a difficult text to understand, so I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go super deep on this, but let me summarize the three major views on this. The first view is a second chance view, and I'm just going to go ahead and go like this because I don't think that's even true. And this view teaches um, that Christ went to hell to offer repentance to unbelievers. And so the idea is that those unbelievers since the time of Noah um, were, are in hell and Jesus went to hell and spoke to those spirits in hell and gave them an opportunity to repent. This is what the Catholic Church teaches and I reject this because it conflicts with other scriptures, particularly Hebrews 9.27. It says, it's appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. So every person will live a life, they will die and they'll face an eternal judgment someday, somewhere. There's, there's no second chances. There's no Jesus going to hell and giving you another opportunity to repent. So I think this has to be rejected because I think it contradicts other scriptures. The other second view is this: the fallen angels view. And they see verse 19, the spirits in prison, prison as um, demons, as fallen angels. This teaching uh, believes that there were fallen angels or demonic spirits who disobeyed God during the time of the flood by intermarrying with humans, and they are a distinct group of of angels, demons in hell, and they are in a distinct place in hell. And this view teaches that Jesus went to hell to visit those fallen angels and declare victory over Satan. And so the idea is that Jesus declared that he's been vindicated, he rose from the dead, he's defeated Satan and sin, and he went there to hell to tell them that. Um, some with this view think he went to hell right after his, his death. He went down and declared that victory. And I, I don't take that view partly because Jesus told the man on the cross, the thief on the cross, he said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. And so I guess it's possible he went to hell and came back to paradise. But we know that during his death, Jesus was actually with his father in heaven in paradise. Some say then, therefore, it was after his resurrection um, that he went to hell and did this. And 
I would just say like this view is held by many, uh, many people that I respect and I think they, they potentially could be right, I could potentially be wrong, okay? In other words, there are good men that hold this position. John MacArthur holds somewhat a position like this. So now everyone thinks I'm a heretic, right? But um, some, so good, some good men uh, hold this position here. There's a number of reasons why I don't believe this is the position that um, one should hold in this text of Scripture. But although, therefore, I also have humility to recognize I could be wrong, okay? But first of all, I don't think there's any other clear teaching. In fact, I can't find any other clear teaching in the New Testament of Jesus going to hell. Uh, if it's such an important doctrine, wh why isn't it taught other places? And, uh, and so it seems to me the Holy Spirit would have given a lot clearer support for this view uh, of Jesus needing to go to hell to tell the, the demonic spirits this. I have a list of other reasons that we don't have time to go in today. I, I, my most important reason in my position for my position is I think the context and the point of this text actually points to this next position, which is Noah's generation view. So... Some good men hold this. Um, John Piper, this is his view. I have a man I follow and, and read a lot about, Dave Doran. Um, Augustine, 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 however you want to say it. He uh, lived a long time ago, fourth century. He had this view. Anyways, <clears throat> this view basically says this. It says, Christ, by the Holy Spirit, preached through Noah to those alive during the flood, and those people rejected God and are now spirits in hell. Okay. Does that make sense to you? Well, hopefully it will as we go through it. So look at verse 18. I want you to notice how verse 18 kind of ties into verse 19. In verse 18, it says that Jesus was made alive by the Holy Spirit. And then verse 19, in which, or you could say in whom, so speaking of the Holy Spirit, in whom he, that's Jesus, went and proclaimed. So Jesus went by the power of the Holy Spirit that res resurrected him, but he went by the power of the Spirit, and then he proclaimed to certain people. And, he, and those people are described as spirits in prison. Now, why are they described as spirits in prison? <clears throat> I believe those, are, those people, the spirits in prison, are unbelievers who are now in hell, but were alive in Noah's day. They disobeyed God and, therefore, and rejected the offer of repentance, they therefore went to hell, their spirits in prison, and the spirits in prison represent really how they're described right now, their, their present condition. In other words, we speak like this all the time. So Pastor Roger is our pastor here, right? We love Pastor Roger. Pastor Roger was an unsaved hippie at one time, weren't you, right? Yeah, back in the day. And did you grow up in Ventura or Bakersfield or? Okay. But, you know, if I speak of Pastor Roger growing up in Ventura as an unbelieving hippie at one time, Pastor Roger is, is a description of him today, not when he was an unbelieving hippie, right? So I could say that, and you're not confused by that. You go, oh, yeah, of course. He's not saying he was Pastor Roger back then. He's saying right now he's Pastor Roger, and that's what happened back then. Or you could say someone like, um, everyone loves using this illustration of Donald Trump, so I'm going to use him, Right? He was a reason, Donald Trump was a reality star, right? Now, was, when he was a reality star, was his name, title, Donald Trump? No, okay? So we, rec we speak like this. And so that's, I think that's what he's doing right here. He's speaking. He's saying the spirits in prison, in other words, their present condition right now is they are spirits. They don't have the resurrected bodies yet. So they're spirits in prison, and prison describes hell. Prison refers to a place that someone cannot escape. 
The word prison is used in other scriptures as a place of punishment after death. It's used of Satan in Revelation 27. It's used of fallen angels in first, or sorry, 2 Peter 2, 4, and Jude 6. Prison and chains and things like that are metaphors to describe the permanence of a person separated from God in hell. And, and for those texts, it's actually just about Satan and demons. But actually, we remember that hell was created for who? wasn't created for humans. It was created for Satan and demons. In fact, remember this text, Jesus said that he will say to humans, those who reject him, those who don't have faith in him, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And so it makes sense to me that if hell is described as a prison for Satan and his angels, then it would be described as that for unrepentant humans as well. So they're described as spirits because they... Have, don't have the resurrected bodies yet. They're in hell. They're awaiting their resurrected body. And again, think about that. Every person will get a resurrected body. Those will be, some will be resurrected to life with God. Some will be resurrected to hell, separated from God with a real human body that will eternally suffer away from the presence of God, which is terrifying to think about. And so, so I think that's what, who it describes here. So if you read the whole passage, look at verse, um, verse 19. In the end of verse 18, Jesus Christ was made alive by the Spirit in which, so by the Spirit, he went and he proclaimed. And when did that happen? Well, verse 20 is going to do, talk about that. But he went and proclaimed to these people who are right now spirits in prison. And then verse 20 talks about when he went and proclaimed to them. Verse 20, because they, those are those spirits, those humans that are now in hell, that were alive during the time of Noah, formerly they did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared. So when did Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, preach to these people? Well, it was when they were alive on earth. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. In fact, look at this text over here. You can, you can look in your Bible or you can look on the screen up here. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. The Old Testament preachers are described as preaching Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, they're, they're, they're actually, it's actually, the picture is, it's Christ actually preaching in the Old Testament by his Spirit through the prophets. So look at verse 11. The prophets inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them. So the Holy Spirit, that's Christ's Spirit, was in them, and he was indicating when uh, they, the Holy Spirit was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have, now look at this, now been announced. So that's present in that day, preaching of God's word. So those, those people in this church, these churches in, in 1 Peter, um, it was presently announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. So, so Christ preaches to you by his preachers in the Holy Spirit. So there's a description in the, in the New Testament that there are preachers that are preaching, and it's actually Christ preaching to you in the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, look at one other text. You can look on the screen up here. Ephesians 2, 16. Notice how Paul describes the preaching of Christ. He says, Christ... That he, Christ, might, be, uh, might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. So there's the idea that we're brought to God, reconciled to God, thereby killing the hostility, the enemy of sin and death, 
And he, Christ, came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. Now think about that. Jesus died, was buried, resurrected. He ascended. He's on the right hand of the Father. This is, this is years after that happened here. And yet he's saying that Christ came and preached to them. Now how is that possible that Christ came and preached to those people? Well, there's preachers. And there's a sense when the scripture speaks of a preacher declaring the gospel, it's actually Jesus Christ speaking to you by the power of his Holy Spirit through the word of God. And I'd say this, this idea is why I take the preaching of God's word so serious. And I, and I know and I, and I hope you do as well. I view whoever stands up here, whether it be Pastor Roger or myself or someone else that comes and speaks God's word, I view that as Christ speaking to his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. And don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm Jesus, okay? <laughs> Far from it. But there's a sense where I represent Christ up here. I'm speaking the words of Christ. I'm speaking it, Lord willing, in the power of the Holy Spirit and so we should view the preaching of God's word as something unique. Sometimes people are like, well, I have a Bible at home. I can read the Bible. What's the difference? I don't need to go to church or, or I can do my own Bible study at home. But the scriptures describe preaching as something very unique. It's actually Jesus Christ speaking to you. Now, let me ask you this question. If, if Jesus Christ were to walk in these doors and come up here and speak to you, would you listen differently than you're listening right now? I mean, would your attitude be different if Jesus Christ stood up here and began to preach, hopefully, my position on this, on this passage, right? Would, would, you, would you respond any different? I was thinking about it. I was like, well, hopefully it's the same position, but we'll find out when we get to heaven. I think we should seriously consider that. I can remember when I was in college, and I remember really the first time that really, it really sunk into my heart, and I started taking the preaching of God's word very serious probably through high school and even through my freshman year in college, I just kind of listened to people preaching and doodled a lot and daydreamed and thought about different things and my, thought about different tests I had and maybe some girls I could date but never did. Anyways, and then I blew my knee out when I was in uh, a sophomore in college and I played soccer and so obviously after that I couldn't play soccer anymore and I found myself in uh, a building where I was recovering from surgery and, and I was asking myself, like, what, do I, what am I doing with my life? And I started listening to preaching on the radio back then when people did that, through tapes back then when people used those. And, and then I started listening to God's word different, and it started changing my life. And there was a different attitude that I had when I approached it. I approached it as Christ speaking to me. And so here you see Noah was that person in that day. In fact, go back to Genesis chapter 6. You can either go back there or also on your handout, there's the text there. You can just look at it on there. But would you go back to Genesis chapter 6 and just look at this briefly with me? I'm not going to go through the whole text. But just consider what happened back in the day of Noah. First of all, let me just say this. This is a real event. There's a lot of theologians and seminaries out there that are teaching that this is not real, that this is just a story. Um, but actually, Noah was a real person. This is a real event. Uh, I've been to the Creation Museum, and uh, you know, it's out in Kentucky, and uh, the big ark that they have out there. It's kind of cool to look at. But there's evidence all around this world that this was a real event. Of course, we believe what the scripture says, 
And so that's why we believe this is true. And so Noah was a real person. Jesus said he was a real person, right? Peter believed he was a real person. So if you don't believe he was a real person, this was a real event, then you don't believe Jesus. You don't believe Peter. Therefore, you don't believe the Bible, okay? So let's just come to that conclusion. Look in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Bible says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is a great description of a society without God. Here were wicked people following whatever they wanted their heart to do, and therefore they did evil continually. A person left to themselves without God, without God's word, will come to this point right here. Well, they'll do whatever they want to do, and they'll live an evil life. And therefore, look down in verse 11. The Bible says, The earth was corrupt, speaking of the people of the earth, in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. Because of their sin, God promised, therefore, that he was going to judge the entire population of the earth with judgment. And that was a judgment of water or a flood that would kill every person. But it's interesting, it didn't happen right away. God instructed Noah to build this ark, this large ship. Look in verse 10, 9 and 10. Look how it describes Noah. It says, Noah was a righteous man. And we can assume, therefore, his family was as well, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah had a personal relationship with God because God chose to shine his favor and his grace upon Noah and Noah responded in faith. And so Noah was a builder and a preacher. That's actually a good combination, right, Norm? Amen. Amen. There you go. So good combination. The Bible actually describes him as a herald of righteousness, which means he would have proclaimed Christ and the righteousness of Christ. And how long did it take him to build that ark? 120 years. Why do you think it took him that long? Lousy help? <laughs> Maybe. It was a pretty big project. But also, actually, the Bible describes this as a time where God was patient. He was patient. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. Look at verse 20. God describes this time as a time where he patiently waited for people to repent. In verse 20, again, he's describing these people who are now in hell, but Christ during the time of Noah preached to them. In verse 20, it says, because they, those people who had an opportunity to hear the herald of, of righteousness, Noah, they formally did not obey. What didn't they obey? They didn't obey the teaching and the preaching of Noah. And it says, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, Noah and his family, were brought safely through the water. God promised judgment, but it didn't come right away. Right? It was, he was patient. He was long-suffering. He waited 120 years while they saw this ark being constructed, and they probably therefore mocked him, rejected him. I mean, think about it this way. Noah was the oddball, right? He was the weirdo. Right? What? Water's going to fill the whole earth? It's gonna, there's judgment from God for our sin? We don't see anything, Noah. 
right? He's the weirdo until what? Until he gets in that ark, God himself shuts the door, and they look out, the rain comes, the flood comes, and people recognize, no, no, this whole time, we, we're the weirdos, right? We're the oddballs, and Noah's the normal one. No, 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 uh, not Norm, but Noah, <laughs> kind of interchangeable there. Norm too. Noah was the one that actually was the sane one for 120 years, and it, it, didn't, it didn't seem that way throughout the process, but actually, in the end, he recognized that was the reality. Noah, in his day, is a great description of our day, isn't it? In fact, the Bible says, as it was in the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And that's Jesus Christ who said that. You know, we look around at our world, and don't you feel like a reject sometimes? The outcasts? Maybe we're the defeated ones. Maybe we're the ones that are the weirdos. Maybe we have the weird views. We believe there was a guy named Noah that built an ark, and water filled the earth, and judgment came, and we believed Jesus is going to come in heaven, and I mean, kind of feels a little bit like we're weird, doesn't it? And we can feel like, and maybe even think, are we, are we the outsiders? Are we the, are we the, or we are the outsiders, but are we the crazy ones? But actually, perspective and reality will come when Christ comes. We'll be finally saved, not our souls, our souls are already saved, but our bodies We'll be with Christ and we'll be vindicated. But what is happening right now, the Bible says, the Lord, he's patient. He's waiting for you to repent, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. If you're listening to me right now and you keep pushing off the Lord, listen, the reason he gives you another breath is because he's patient with you. But the reality is, he will not be patient forever. Your life could end today. Christ could come back tomorrow. And reality will set in at some point. Again, as it was in the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Lord be. Again, as I just think about the world and everything that's happening right now, I don't know about you, but it kind of makes me sad. Does it make you sad what's happening in the world? It does for me. And I was, that partly was why I was down this past week. I was like, this is really sad. But I actually came to this reality. Ben, I think you're sad because you love this world so much. You know, I think I love this world probably a little too much. And I definitely am sad because righteousness is, is rejected, because truth is scorned. Definitely those things are true. But I think even deep in my heart, I'm like, I really don't want it to get bad. <laughs> I really want it to be good. But as it was in the days of Noah, as people follow their own hearts, violence fills the earth. I mean, the violence we see on TV and the news, it's, I'm, frankly, it's going to get worse if people don't turn to Christ. And maybe God will use that to turn people's hearts to him. We pray for that. But for the Christian, we recognize that when Christ comes back, it's going to be a lot like Noah's day. And we're speeding there pretty quickly, aren't we? Which actually should be something we rejoice in, right? Because our victor, Jesus Christ, has gained the victory, and he's coming to announce it and bring us home to be with him. When I was reading through this text, I had a song that uh, we would sing growing up, and it's the song, It Will Be Worth It All. You know that song? It goes, it will be worth it all. 
Let me just sing it for you. It goes, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrows will erase. So bravely run the race when we see Christ. Some of you know that song, huh? You want to sing it? Let's sing it together. Here you go. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. That's our hope. I think the saddest text, part of this text here is in verse 19, that those who rejected the Lord, didn't just, they didn't just face the judgment of water, they are right now spirits in prison for eternity because they rejected the Lord. And again, friend, if you're without Christ, 20, 30, 40 years of doing what you want to do in this world being rejected by God because of your sin, because you've rejected him, and then living eternity without Christ is, or I should say, your life on this earth is nothing compared to eternity without Christ. It might seem like right now this is the best, most comfortable, pleasurable thing to do. But think about these people in this text right here. The spirits in prison who had Christ preach to them through the power of the Holy Spirit, through Noah, what do they wish they would have done at that time? They wish they could have, they would have returned, I believe, in repentance and reconciled. But Noah, he trusted. Noah, he suffered. You can kind of see the context now. It's Noah, he suffered. He endured. He did good, which for him was keep building that ark. Keep preaching righteousness. And then he was vindicated when the rains came. So now look at verse 19. We'll conclude with this. In, the, in which he, that's Christ, Christ went and proclaimed at the time of Noah to the spirits in prison, those who are now in hell, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. Why is it better to suffer for doing good? And the answer, Jesus Christ is the victor. He saves and vindicates those who endure by faith. Let's trust Jesus as the victor in our life. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful. Jesus, I'm so thankful that you gained the victory. We can feel down. We can feel like we are defeated. Righteousness is ignored. But there will be a day, Jesus Christ, when you will come back. Father, your plan will come in, into full effect and really completion, I should say. And we will see Christ and we look forward to that day. Praise God for the victory. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask the music team to come up. We're going to end with communion here this morning. I know you guys practiced hard on this song, but I don't know if we're going to be able to do it this morning. I don't know if we have time. How about we'll just do like the first two verses? Does that sound like a good thing? Okay. We're going to sing a song It's new to you. Maybe, maybe not. Um, written by a guy that I'm friends with as a pastor in Georgia. It's called His Robes for Mine. And so um, I'm trying to get, calculate the time here because I was supposed to end earlier and I just got carried away. Um, so let's do this. Let's sing the, let's sing, um, the first two verses this, of this song and together. And so let's do this. Shannon, would you guys, or I guess both of you, would you sing the first verse for us? And then we'll join you in the second verse. Does that sound good? Okay. Let's sing His Robes for Mine. Go ahead, you can stand up.
ask our men to come forward. If you've never heard that song before, it might be a good one to look up on Google. I'm sorry, Duck, Duck, Go. Don't use Google. Anyways, and uh, it's a good one. Maybe we'll sing it again sometime. We want to conclude the service with the Lord's table. This is a time for us to celebrate Christ's work for us. We've spoken, preached about Christ's work this morning. I thought it'd be appropriate for us to end with this. Remind you that this is a time for believers to celebrate the Lord's table. If you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, then you can just uh, go ahead and celebrate or go ahead and listen. But uh, we ask you not to celebrate. It's also a time for believers who are walking with Christ and in fellowship with him and fellowship with one another. So if you're not in fellowship with God or with someone else, again, um, you can listen and the, the songs, but please don't partake. It's a very serious time for us to be able to examine our hearts before the Lord. And, uh, and so we're going to partake of the Lord's table at this time. And I'm going to pray. And then what we're going to do this morning is, because of the whole shutdown and all the restrictions, we're going to ask if you are a believer and you're walking with the Lord, you want to take it to the Lord's table, would you put your, not now, but when we sing, would you put your hand up so these guys can see? They're actually going to pass the elements to you, okay? That way we don't spread uh, germs and that kind of thing. So if you don't put your hand up, you're not getting one. Does that make sense? Okay, <laughs> sounds good. Let me pray, and then after I'm done praying, these men will pass out the elements. Our team up here will sing um, the first two verses. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the plan that you have, and that is for Christ to suffer for us once for all, the just, the righteous for the unrighteous, that you might bring us to you. And I pray we will celebrate that in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.